you the quantum mechanics. And we're on the air. This is, uh, well, I should say you are listening to the quantum mechanics. This is the podcast for the doubters, the believers and everyone in between. And here we are in the sort of middle of October, very nearly the spooky season, the spooky season. Here it comes. Nearly the spooky season. Here we go. Yes, definitely. Well, I had a spooky experience this week. Not not a paranormal experience, but quite a scary one. Okay. I was dri- I was driving yesterday and I came round a corner, probably doing about 50 mile an hour, you know, on those country lanes. Mm. And a massive stag just ran right across the front of the car. Had to do an emergency stop. Missed it by like inches, centimetres, just like... The thing was massive, absolutely massive. Big horns, the whole works. Whoa, was, I, I've never had that before. I don't know if you've had that, but you've been in the countryside longer than me. You've probably had it. It's really scary. Oh, it is really scary. Uh, well, I haven't had that, but there used to be... Um, but where where I used to live when I lived at home with um, my mum, there's a very, very long straight road out of the village she lives in. And part of it is covered by um, a bit of woodland. And in that woodland, it's known that, that you know, there's a sign up saying the deer crossing. And but if you got back sort of late at night, like one or two in the morning, and it would usually, especially this time of year, be a bit misty. And you'd be driving along and you'd be a bit cautious because you knew that there were deer coming across. And then in the headlights, you'd pick out these twinkling eyes and there'd be two, four, six, eight, ten, and they'd just build. And suddenly you'd realise that you were about to drive through a big herd of deer and you'd go very, very slowly, but it's incredibly creepy at like two in the morning. And for some yeah. reason, like at that time of night, they don't scarper. You 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 slow right down in the car and you sort of just chunter through and they do clear out of the way of the car, but they they don't move off the road and the whole thing just feels like the beginning of some epic and disastrous horror movie where I'm gonna get knifed by yeah. a man who's dressed as a deer. <laughs> Yeah, I'm always hearing Kratos Minimus, ha, 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 like that kind of going oh, on. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Omen, so, yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, 100%, yeah. It does remind me, though, of um, it. probably worth a Google, see if you can find it. There is a brilliant uh, phone-in, to, it's quite old, but there's a brilliant phone-in to an American radio station where this woman wanted to talk about deer crossing signs. And her logic, her, and it went on for, it's really funny, it goes on for about 10 minutes. She was going, why do they put the signs there? Why can't they put the signs where there's less traffic so you don't get the deer crossing there? <laughs> she believed that they put the signs up to let the deer know this is where they could cross. And, and the radio host was kind of going, no, but they're just to warn the, you, the people, that there might be deer about. And she said, yeah, but that's a stupid place to put the signs because if they're going to go across there, it's really busy road near me where they've put the signs. She must be just having a laugh, surely. No, no, she, no, no, it goes on for about 10 minutes and they really try and explain it to her, but she just can't, she's not having any of it. It's really funny. If I find just, it, if I if I do find it, I will stick it on our social media, which will look a bit weird to anyone who's not heard the podcast. But if I can find the clip, I will put it on there so people can have a listen because it is absolutely hilarious. But that's so 
that's so weird. That means that uh, some yeah, in her logic, there's there's a deer that is trotting along one day and sees the sign and then goes back and tells his or her deer mates, "Oh, yeah. they've set up a crossing for us. That's this is where we have to go now, guys." Yeah. And they're like, yeah, "Or yeah, if there's no, no totally. sign, they're like, we can't cross here. We'll have to go back." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But are we still okay to just completely run across the road without looking? Oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. That's what they put the sign there for. It's just they want you to do it in a place where there's less traffic. Oh, okay, that's fine. Because our thing really is running across without looking. And we don't want to lose that. Because otherwise, if that, you know, if we haven't got that, what is our identity? Yeah. Well, if I do find that clip, I will, I will put it on our Facebook at TQM Podcast. Um, it's got nothing to do with the paranormal, but it's very funny. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Ben, talking about deer, that that deer that uh, I nearly hit yesterday obviously had a near-death experience, which need, leads me nicely onto today's topic, as that's what I want to talk about. Is it venison? And it, <laughs> yeah. No, we're not talking about deer and venison all day. Oh. We're going to talk about NDEs, uh, near-death experiences. That makes sense. Okay. Um, and uh, this episode was sparked by a conversation I had with a friend of mine who is a nurse in an intensive care unit at a local hospital here. Um, and I'll come on to her uh, insights a, a little later but the conversation I had with my nurse friend reminded me, actually, that my mother had a near-death experience when I was a child, which I'd completely forgotten about. So my mother was seriously ill in hospital, and it was touch and go. It was whether she was going to live. Luckily, she survived. But she did and does describe having a near-death experience, one that seems quite typical of many other people's experience. She saw the bright lights. Uh, she had this moment when she felt like she was leaving her body and floated to the ceiling. She looked down at herself and she could see the doctors and nurses who were attending to her physical body. And then, snap, she was back in her own body again and all that disappeared. Which is amazing, right? It's, it's right. so bizarre. Yeah. That. And, and she recalled it all once she'd come round. Yeah, really clearly. Yeah, or right. that. Well, I, I was quite young. We talked about it over the years. Uh, I don't remember the incident at the time, but she she recants the story with, you know, vivid clarity of exactly what happened. And I think the bit that she said was the weirdest was she was literally felt like she was floating on the ceiling, and she could look down and see the doctors and nurses kind of like and her on the on the bed below really bizarre blimey wow that is mad i mean we've heard those stories elsewhere but that is yeah ev every time i hear that it is a crazy story yes yeah well one of the main things that interests me about the topic is that you generally hear about it from kind of either a religious a paranormal or even a spiritual perspective you know so moving down a tunnel to a bright light is often seen as heading towards heaven right right leaving yeah and leaving your body behind it it 
gets your brain thinking about the soul leaving the physical body and some you know existence of the soul after death lots of people describe meeting and conversing with dead relatives which makes you think about ghosts and spirits lots of people see angels so I feel I know less about the scientific and psychological angle of this phenomena. Mm. So I, th- and I thought I'd start with that rather than list other people's stories because mainly they're very similar to my mother's experience, right? You hear the same things over mm. and over again, right? Right. Um, so uh, I did some digging around and I found a really interesting article in Scientific America. It's by Christoph Koch. Uh, it was out last year and it's titled What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About the Brain. And the article looks at why people share very similar experiences, you know, such as feeling pain-free, lights at the end of tunnels, floating above your body, all that stuff. And it also looks into why, which is really interesting to me, given the fact that people are physically experiencing a lack of blood flow and oxygen, that these experiences generally Mm. get reported as being positive or blissful rather than painful or full of blind panic. Because you would think if you're at the point of death (laughs) and your, your body is suffering, you would go through that pain, fear and blind panic, right? Mm, yes, yes, you would, yeah. So what struck me in the article is this general perception of near-death experiences as this blissful spiritual event, but that is not always the case. The article states that NDEs can be either positive or negative experiences. The former receive all the press and relate to those feelings of an overwhelming presence, something numinous, divine, this jarring disconnect separating the trauma of the body, you know, in conjunction with the peacefulness and feelings of oneness with the universe. It's quite flowery language, but you you can see where they're getting at with Mm, that, right? mm. But the article states that not all uh, near-death experiences are blissful. Some can be frightening, marked by intense terror, anguish, loneliness and despair. And it it muses that it's likely that the publicity around near-death experiences has built up expectations of what people think they should feel after such an episode. It seems possible, in fact, that the distressing NDEs are significantly underreported because maybe people feel shameful, there might be a stigma attached to that, or indeed a pressure to conform to this prototype of this blissful near-death experience yeah well there is a sort of i guess a thing where if you've had a vision of something which you could describe as hell then that means that you're a bad person right 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 okay especially if that kind of fits into your belief system yeah Yeah, actually i hadn't thought about it from that perspective but that is really interesting if you didn't see the angels the white light the tunnel and you got something that was far more sinister, yeah, I could see why you might go, I'm not telling anyone about that. Yeah. But I, I guess whether, whether a near-death experience is blissful or distressing, they are incredibly intense experiences. Um, and in 2017, researchers at the University of Virginia looked at the impact of NDEs on people who had had them. 
They interviewed 122 people who'd experienced them and asked them to compare their memories of that experience with other events in their life from roughly the same time. And this is really interesting. Well, the first bit, they say that NDAs were recalled with greater vividness than other events they experienced at the time, which I guess would make sense, right? If you've gone, I mean, the clue's in the name. If you've gone through a near-death experience, it would be more intense than, you know, I don't know, slipping in the supermarket, right? Yes, or what I had for supper last night. Yeah, uh, exactly. Of course, yeah, yeah. So, so that bit didn't really strike me. But then it goes on to say, which really set my brain a worrying. What's really interesting is that the majority of the participants in this survey, so there's 122 of them, all have had a near-death experience. The majority of them described their NDE as being realer than real, or words to that effect, realer than real. So there's... That sort of carries with it a, I don't know, a, an assumption from that that one could make, which is that they are looking into a real yet otherworldly place because if it was just a dream, dreams don't feel realer than real, do they? I mean, some people might say they are, but you... Once once you're awake, you you sort of go, well, that fe- that felt real, but you don't really, you know, you don't really remember it. No, and but also that description, you know, like you're saying, you know, a dream is something different. People would say, you know, like when where which I'll I'll mention sleep paralysis later, but like when we've talked about sleep paralysis, and I had experience of that, it wasn't realer than real; it just felt real. So to actually say something feels realer than real, I just think is really interesting. Yeah, I do too. And this may be a bit of a stretch, Ben, but it got me thinking about simulated reality Mm. and are we living in a simulation? So bear with me with this, right? It's a bit sci-fi, what I'm going to say next. It's not necessarily grounded in research, but... I started thinking, if we're living in a simulated reality, does a near-death experience take us closer to the reality of our existence in some way? Almost like in a video game, beating the boss in the boss level and then moving up to the next level, to use an analogy. Mm. In some way, it's like if you're a character in a simulation, death is probably your final act on that level, let's say. Mm-hmm. And maybe at that point, something gets revealed to you of what mm. actually the truth is. Does that sound completely bonkers? No, it doesn't sound completely bonkers. I, I'm just trying to... When you were saying that, I was just trying to understand whereabouts in the code you are because cause a, a conventional computer game the character within the game is simply part of the code it's it's a different part of the code but it is part of the code so i guess what i was thinking is the way you've just described that means that it would mean that one part of the code that say is running humans and earth is is almost sentient in its own abilities and then when it's exposed through some kind of uh, 
I don't know, glitch in the code that you see another part of the... I, this analogy is running out, but you see what I mean? It means that yeah. one part of the code lead, needs to look at another part of the code. That's what yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah. Well, look, park that thought for a minute, because later on I will return to this theme of simulated reality, but park it for now. Okay. Let's go back to people's experiences of... Uh, near-death experiences and one way to explain why the experience is similar for so many people is connected with something that you alluded to earlier you know people's religious belief systems so you know we get angels we get lights uh which all tie in with christian and other religions themes of heaven and hell you know your your soul leaving your body these are very kind of religious or spiritual things so you kind of think well okay but what if you don't believe in that what is really interesting through research there is no correlation between people being more likely to have these experiences if they are devout believers in religion as a non-believer you are just as likely to be affected by the phenomena and have a similar experience as those with a deep religious belief and and the things that they report are they the same yeah yeah so do people who have a deep religious experience do they not sorry have a deep religious belief do they not report seeing you know deities that they believe in or they they all just report um so what it's it's a bright light it's a feeling of empathy connection yeah. with the universe something like this blissful white light some people report seeing angels um some people report conversing with dead relatives right uh, um this leaving your body separation from your body is a big theme looking down so these are kind of all yeah kind of religious spiritual imagery um which will come back to that as well mm -hmm. in a minute okay uh, um the other thing for me, it, and I don't know if you feel the same, I, I think about near-death experiences as more of a modern thing, a kind of 20th or 21st century phenomena. Yes. And I wonder, I was thinking about it, maybe it's because we are more connected to medicine, hospitals, let alone we've got the ability now to report and share those stories. Yeah, right? yeah, that that's what I thought. Like, in the past, if you'd had one, you'd you know where would you share it it's kind of it's a difficult environment where now you could just write it up on the internet and largely be anonymous yeah yeah and also i was thinking if you go back to you know earlier times you know we've done a lot on the 1500s and stuff maybe if you mention these things you'd be terrified that you might be tried as being a witch or yeah just like you mentioned about the devil yeah but but these experiences have been going on for centuries and there is a lovely historical account from 1791 by Sir Francis Beaufort, who invented the Beaufort scale, apparently, which I'm not sure what that is, but he invented it. Oh, that is, uh, that's wind. I know that. That's wind. Yeah, it's wind. There you go. Well, he's, he was a British admiral who nearly died in a drowning incident. And he described his near-death experience in his journal. 
So this was in 1791. It's slightly abridged, but I, it's, it's a beautifully written thing. And he wrote of his near-death experience, A calm feeling of the most perfect tranquillity succeeded the most tumultuous sensation. Nor was I in any bodily pain. On the contrary, my sensations were now of rather a pleasurable cast. Though the senses were thus deadened, not so the mind. Its activity seemed to be invigorated in a ratio which defies all description. For thoughts rose after thought with a rapidity of succession that is not only indescribable, but probably inconceivable by anyone who has been himself in a similar situation. The course of these thoughts I can even now in great measure retrace. The events that had just taken place, thus travelling backwards, every instant of my past life seemed to me to glance across my recollection in retrograde procession. The whole period of my existence seemed to be placed before me in a kind of panoramic view. So that, I mean, that is, it's not a classical depiction of heaven, but it's a, I mean, it's a recognisable one. It's almost a, um, I suppose, uh, a non-theorist view of heaven. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or, and it also spark thoughts of you know that that almost that cliche of my life passed before my eyes that right. sounded what very much what he was describing it did make me think he should have become a writer rather than an admiral because I, I think that is so beautifully written yes 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 it, it is it is and there's sort of like a, a a passing reference there to something that i have come across when i've been reading these experiences not in the depth that you have but you you know when you you see them in books and yep. stuff this um this idea of the life review yeah 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 and well I, the, go on sorry no i was just going to say and and it sounds a little bit like part of that um is incorporated into his tale there but he doesn't he doesn't seem to go into it massively yeah, it, and this is an abridged version, so right, there, right. there may be other there may be other bits that that, that go on that. I, I found another account from 1900, and it's interesting because it's by a surgeon, a Scottish surgeon named Sir Alexander Ogston. Now, he nearly died from typhoid, and I think what's interesting about his account is uh, he over I'm not sure how long the period of time was. But he had multiple near-death experiences because because of typhoid and it being a fever. He was kind of almost dying and coming back to life on a number of occasions. So I thought his account is really interesting. He, he wrote, I lay, as it seems, in a constant stupor which excludes the existence of any hopes or fears. Mind and body seem to be dual and to some extent separate. I was conscious of the body as an inert, tumbled mass near a door. It belonged to me, but it was not I. I was conscious that my mental self used regularly to leave my body. I was then drawn rapidly back to joined it, joined it with disgust, and it became I, and I was fed, spoken to and cared for. And though I knew that death was hovering about me, having no thought of religion nor dread of the end, and roamed on beneath the murky skies apathetic and contented 
until something again disturbed the body where it lay when I was drawn back into it afresh. Gosh. So again, this seems like somebody who, like you, like the last one, who wasn't having a religious experiences, but some of the themes he talks about there do seem similar, this kind of blissfulness, this being pulled back to the body. I thought it was interesting when he said he went back to his body and joined it with disgust, as if he didn't want to be drawn away from that place. Yeah. And and there's this, this constant theme of... Um, this place, that place is better than this as well. Yes, yeah, exactly. That there's, which is, even for a man who's both those men, I think, who are not necessarily talking about it in any spiritual connection, almost a very factual, observational way of writing about it, there are undertones of that spiritualness. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so... I love those two quotes and I, I picked them in a way maybe because they were different to most of the accounts that you recall. You know what I mean? They weren't cliched. They they did seem to seem very self-aware in the way they described it, if you see what I mean. Yes. And it, it, it got me thinking, if we discount a spiritual or supernatural explanation to this phenomena, what is the scientific angle? And this Scientific America article goes on to discuss this. So to quote from uh, an old advert, here comes the bendy science bit. (laughs) The underlying neurological sequence of events in a near-death experience is difficult to determine with any precision because of the dizzying variety of ways in which the brain can be damaged. I thought that that... maybe come on to that later that was interesting to me because it made me think if there are a dizzying variety of ways in which the brain can be damaged it seems strange that people have the same experiences and visions but anyway we'll come back to that Mm. furthermore ndas do not strike when the individual is lying in a magnetic scanner or his or her scalp covered by nets of electrodes it is possible, though, to gain some idea of what happens by examining a cardiac arrest in which the heart stops beating. The patient is coding, in hospital jargon. The patient has not died because the heart can be jump-started. Modern death requires irreversible loss of brain function. I've got some tough words coming up, so we'll see how I do. When the brain is starved of blood flow, ischemia and oxygen anoxia the patient faints in a fraction of a minute and his or her electroencephalogram or eeg becomes isoelectric in other words flat so you flatline right oh yeah okay this implies that large-scale spatial distributed electric electrical activity within the cortex the outermost layer of the brain has broken down now, lucky, luckily for me and you, and probably the listeners as well, they do go on to give an analogy of this, which is probably a little bit clearer than what I've just read out. They say, it is like a town that loses power one neighbourhood at a time. Local regions of the brain go offline one after another. The mind, whose substrate is whichever neurons remain capable of generating electrical activity, does what it always does. It tells a story, shapes by the person's experience, memory, and cultural expectations. 
Given these power outages, this experience may produce the rather strange and idiosyncratic stories that make up the corpus of near-death reports. To the person undergoing it, the NDE is as real as anything the mind produces during, during normal awakening. When the entire brain is shut down because of complete power loss, the mind is extinguished, along with the consciousness. If and when oxygen and blood flow are restored, the brain boots up and the narrative flow of experience resumes. So that 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 is a description of what the process are. I think the 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 neighborhood losing power one kind of region at a time I think is really interesting. And almost a bit like we I was saying earlier about sleep paralysis what you then try and interpret what's going on with you in a way that your brain can make logical sense of it. Yeah. But that that description is very um, materialistic medical, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But it yep. it does there's a there's an implicit um, suggestion in there that it is the brain itself that that piece of meat in our skull that is creating consciousness. And it excludes the possibility that consciousness exists from you know elsewhere, and and our brain is more of a receiver and an interpreter rather than the creator. I'm not saying either are right. I'm just saying that that is what the explanation sort of no, gives us. De- definitely, and it is purely from a scientific point of view rather than any, I guess, taking into account any of that. Um, what is also interesting is that scientists have videotaped, analysed and dissected the loss and subsequent recovery of consciousness in highly trained individuals, e.g. US test pilots and NASA astronauts when they've been in centrifuges during the Cold War and other times. So, you know, those machines that you, yeah, everyone will have seen them, right? The astronaut mm. sits in, it spins around at high speed. So around five times the force of gravity, the cardiovascular system stops delivering blood to the brain and the pilot faints. About 20 or t- 10 or 20 seconds after these large G-forces cease, consciousness returns accompanied by a comparable interview of confusion and disorientation. The range of phenomena these men recount may amount to what the article describes, which I think is a really nice description, as NDE light, so near-death experience light. Um, Pilots and astronauts who have this experience in these centrifuges uh, describe tunnel vision, bright lights, feelings of awakening from sleep, partial or complete paralysis, a sense of peaceful floating, out-of-body experiences sensations of pleasure, even euphoria, short but intense dreams, often involving conversations with family members that remain vivid to them many years afterwards. These intense felt experiences triggered by a specific physical insult typically do not have any religious characteristics, perhaps because participants knew ahead of time that they would be stressed until they fainted, but their very nature, NDAs are not readily amenable to well-controlled laboratory experiments. So I, I, I thought that was interesting. I, I kind of felt, though, while I was reading that, 
it does. Andy Light was the description. Interesting, there were none of these religious characteristics, and yes, the general feeling of that experience of you know that loss of blood to the brain in a centrifuge. There are elements of what happens in a near-death experience, but to me, it didn't really explain those very narrow and specific criteria that people seem to experience do you know what i mean i do it it doesn't feel otherworldly it feels uh more medical than the other explanations yeah i mean tunnel vision you get tunnel well one can get tunnel vision i've i've had that when um uh you know trying to overexert yourself like you know no i don't do it too regularly these days but um (laughs) cycling up a very steep hill and you push yourself as far as you can and i just i'm you know i'm certain it's just a a product of the um physiology of how blood works going around the eye and everything like that but you start to you start to see stars and tunnel vision and that's definitely the time to to stop and have a break whereas what the people who are coming back with the full-scale ndes are saying is that they although they're describing things that sound the same what they appear to be doing is is putting them in a much fancier language which to me means that there is more to it than a simple i had tunnel vision they're not talking yeah yeah just about that so it, they do feel different well and i think i think that's a really good point because i imagine what the article is doing where it's talking about you know astronauts and test pilots in the centrifuges is trying to associate that tunnel vision with people experiencing a light at the end of a tunnel and heading towards heaven that kind of thing but you know i think we've all had experiences of tunnel vision you know i sometimes get migraines occasionally and you have that what what i would describe as tunnel vision it it doesn't seem anywhere close or similar to experiencing a tunnel with a light at the end that I feel this immense attraction to go and walk into. Do you know what I mean? They sound like yeah. very different experiences. Yeah, oh, oh totally. And uh, similarly, you know, I, I, I said earlier that some of this had made me think about sleep paralysis and stories, but again, the experience of sleep paralysis or what you experience completely completely wide range of creative even if it's not some paranormal experience right if it is a natural process sleep paralysis what i experienced very different to the the listener we had on a few weeks ago melanie her you know there there were some similarities about something jumping on the chest or whatever but you know I had a mild version that had Jeff the Talking Mongoose in. Do you know what I mean? It, that certainly yeah. wasn't the same as somebody else's. Yes, yes, yes. And the article does go on. It doesn't talk about um, sleep paralysis, but it, it does compare near-death experiences to an epileptic response known as a complex partial seizure. Uh, the seizures may be accompanied by change in the perceived size of objects, unusual taste, smells and bodily feelings, deja vu, depersonalization or uh, feelings of ecstasy patients report bliss 
enhanced well-being, heightened self-awareness or perception of the external world. So I guess that's a bit like something being real and real. Mm-hmm. But once again, like the astronauts in the centrifuge, that epileptic uh, response that they're talking about doesn't have these very specific consistent features that near-death experiences have. Mm. So I guess the article's angle is it suggests that this is a natural process and the reason people experiences are similar could be connected to their belief systems or at least their cultural belief system or norms of their society they're brought up in. So that is the explanation of why if you are not a religious person, you still may experience in your near-death experience something akin to somebody a religious experience because they seem to be suggesting because that is our societal norm, we somehow our brain makes sense of it in that way. Right. Now, this leads me on nicely to the conversation that started me on this journey with my friend who is the nurse in an intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about the paranormal and UFOs and she was telling me how she hasn't got a paranormal bone in her body, I think was her exact quote, Um, which seems to be all my friends basically. (laughs) I don't know how we end up doing... It's only me and you, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Well, certainly on my front, I, you seem to be the only friend I have that actually likes the paranormal. It's probably why we're talking to each other now. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it is. It's quite a divisive topic, isn't it? Because I think, it you know, as an aside, a lot of people enjoy talking about it. And I find a substantial number of people who enjoy talking about it have got a story. But they will write off their own experience as being a fantasy like in the true meaning of the word fantastic and not want to look into what actually happened they'll just put it down to oh i saw you know i saw a mirage or i imagined it or yeah 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 well so yeah she's not a believer in the paranormal but as a nurse in an intensive care unit she's talked to many people who've come back from the brink of death with incredible tales of near-death experiences. And she she kind of laid out a few. She says she gets lots of the stuff that we've talked about today. You know, the angels, the light at the end of the tunnel, the floating above the body, these all seem to be consistent. And then she said something that really sparked my interest. She said that in the last few years, people coming back from near-death experiences, she has heard tales from patients of UFO encounters and abductions. You, you, you can imagine that suddenly I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. So she said that in these examples, when she's talked to the patients about them, their near-death experiences, they are looking up into the bright light of a spaceship. Then they experience aliens, like alien greys, looking over them talking in an alien language, and then bizarre medical procedures are being carried out on them. Hmm. We've heard this a lot of times before. Yeah, we have. Now, I have to say, my nurse friend, who hasn't got a paranormal bone in her body, to use her own words, 
She had a very logical explanation for this. She believes that when you are close to death, your body is fighting hard, producing all kinds of natural drugs in a last-ditch bid to survival, right? Mm. She said, add to this, you know, often people are on pain relief and opioids that the doctors are administered. Um, And you take into account this process of your brain shutting down one part at a time, which means it's kind of, you know, you know, in brain terms is not, a fully functioning machine in that sense. Mm. And then she said something really interesting. She said, if you put yourself in the position of the patient and how they might perceive this confusing and strange situation they find themselves in, and she said, look, bright lights of a spaceship, to her, translates to the bright lights of an operating theatre or the hospital ward. And she said, look, the patients are lying down. They're looking up at these bright lights. Well, you could easily perceive that as looking at, you know, a light beam coming from a spaceship. Alien Grey's looking over you, speaking an alien language. She translated that into, you've got doctors and nurses in gowns and masks and kind of stuff that you don't normally see people wearing. And they're all talking in medical terms and shorthand that you can't comprehend mm. in that enhanced state that would feel like these are alien creatures talking an alien language Mm. and i guess you know strange medical procedures being conducted on you well yeah that's what's happening to you right whether it's be from these aliens or from the doctors themselves i i guess and i think she makes a good point but and I guess the thing that we don't have um, right now to address this is any knowledge of uh, similar NDE stories that predate, like, I guess, the sci-fi era. And Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, you know, not we're not talking X-Files. Like, I'd probably say sort of before the 1920s comic books and stuff like that. Because I do, like, I do get what she's saying. I do get that your brain might... Um, overlay cultural references into these things but it seems to me to be quite a long it's a long reach to say that those are the only things in play because it what what she's doing there and no disrespect to her she's she's looking at the um the physical aspects that people describe not the mental aspects. Now, I guess what she'd also say is like going back to her opioid opioids point that people are probably quite high on um, the drugs they're being given. And that all makes perfect sense. But she's essentially saying that a person who is being saved from death is recreating a scene from close encounter of the third kind because their brain can't make any sense of it in any other way. And and, and I just I just yeah. don't buy that. Well or, or or in some way that is a more comforting interpretation of what's happening to you rather than the reality is the other way I thought about it. Y- yes, I see that as well, but maybe maybe not having the probe stuck somewhere is not but you know maybe the rest of it is yeah no (laughs) but if we go back to um when well you you mentioned um sleep paralysis 
And yeah. we like we obviously know that um, the old hag syndrome is part of sleep paralysis True. and, and yeah, has yeah. and has been for years. And then the sleep paralysis was used to explain away alien abductions. And and again, yeah. that sort of makes sense. Like, you know, old hags have been the thing for ages and then aliens come along in the culture. Yeah, that sort of makes sense. But why why is it that we're only stuck on old hags and aliens? Why does Ronald McDonald yeah. not come and sit on your chest? Why yeah. why is it that when you're having an NDE and you've previously described either sort of some kind of beautific environment or um, you're describing being taken on board a spacecraft, why could it not be that you're in, you know, a happy place? Why is it that you're not in a theatre with a bright light above you yeah. with a film playing, surrounded by friends? It seems like a very specific place for the brain to go to. And I... I I agree. Yeah, sorry. Go no, on. no. I was just going to say, and what, and your other point about, you know, within our friends group, we're probably the only people that spend any time speaking about aliens. I can, you, you know, w- within the people that I know, I can't think of anybody else who would superimpose a an alien abduction scenario onto an NDE experience, unless it's like not, I don't know, unless there's a mechanism at play, which means that the brain is really reaching into the depths of it. But I know plenty of people who've, who have no interest in it whatsoever. Like, again, I'll just use my mother. She's never even seen close encounters of the third kind, let alone gives any thought to aliens. I'd be massively surprised if her interpretation of being drugged on an operating table would be an alien encounter. I'd be very surprised. Mm. Well, it's like my mother's experience. I mean, my mum isn't particularly religious, so she had what many people would describe as a semi-religious experience. But it's an interesting point you make, especially about, you know, this relationship between belief systems and near-death experiences, because... When my friend told me this story about people who'd had these UFO-themed near-death experiences, it made me wonder that if those people were more likely to be believers in UFOs or the paranormal, because it, that would tie in with this theme of interpreting your experience within your belief system or at least into something that you have a certain degree of knowledge or interest in, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. And. And I did ask her whether she's ever questioned the patient about this. <laughs> but as she pointed out, she said it wasn't really the first thing on your mind as a nurse when a patient comes back from the brink of death, which I was like, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> mm, mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, when I speak to her again, I will say, look, if, you ever, if anyone ever does give you one of those UFO ones, maybe you could ask them if they do have an interest in the paranormal. Because, again, if they haven't and they're not into UFOs or anything like that and they've had a UFO theme near-death experience, then you've got to kind of scratch your head and go, well, why, why do they have that one rather than a religious one, right? Mm, yeah, yeah, completely. Or, or, you know, something that is like again i'll go back to it very rarely do we hear something that isn't you couldn't put into the realms of um like either 
atheistically beautiful, aliens, or something evil and demonic. Like, genuinely, genuinely, like, my dreams don't often... In fact, I can't even remember a time when they've included those. My, my dreams often include things like, you know, mundane things like making dinner or... Um, yeah, yeah. Some, something like that, and, and and I don't understand why there's no mon- mundane things coming through or yeah. things which are more fantastical. If your brain can conjure up and the the idea of an alien spacecraft, it can conjure up a million other things. Why do you not imagine that you're on stage dancing with Fred Astaire? Yeah, 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 like yeah, it, yeah. It, it, you, it doesn't make you've sense. Always wanted, yeah, or you've always wanted to sing in front of Wembley Stadium. Right, do you know right, what I mean? exactly, exactly. I, and and that is the bit that even doing the scientific you know the only explanation of that is well it 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 almost conforms to cultural norms but you know it's like well there are lots of cultural norms that it you would think it would be a much wider range than what we're getting back you know we've got this kind of semi-religious experiences the lights the angels the floating looking at your body the you know and in these later cases kind of the ufo thing but you know like you said you know why wouldn't it be scoring the world cup winning goal or you know singing in front of wembley stadium like freddie mercury doing bohemian rhapsody do you know what i mean yes yes completely and you have to look back at other so i think probably one of the most famous final words apart from kiss me hardy which we're still not sure of is uh is steve jobs with his oh wow oh wow oh wow and i didn't i I hadn't heard that i didn't know that ah yeah that was the very those were the very last six words he ever said um as he stared off into space uh well you know not into space but into the you know into the Cosmos. void of yeah and the void of existence the void of existence and <laughs> and also when um uh, because i'm interested in this i've just re- i've just finished reading a book um uh, i didn't think the stories were kind of good enough to do on the show so i'm not going to bring it in so i think i can talk about it it's um uh ghost stories of the nhs basically and right they're all i've read that book actually have you yeah like yeah, yeah. the 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 stories are largely kind of similar there aren't any nde stories in it but one of the yeah. recurring themes is um just before people expire and we're talking within a short you know a week or less time scale they start referencing the fact that they need to pack because they're going on a journey or the train is going to be here or my mother is going to pick me up. And they're they're very, very insistent on this. And this isn't um, the ramblings of somebody who, you know, isn't quite compromentous. These are things that recur again and again in different hospitals, different people, uh, different patients. And I think that is super interesting as well. There is obviously some kind of prep going on. But I yeah. also was going to say, I, I hadn't heard of 
the idea of uh, an NDA, an NDE, sorry, involving aliens. And that is slightly terrifying because, and I can't remember who wrote the book. I'm going to have to go and check it out and um, I'll bring it up again another time. But I was reading a fairly, it it wasn't a mad book about um, the afterlife. But one of the things that it was saying was that aliens are stealing our souls at the moment of death because they feed off them. Really? And the bright wow. the bright light is an illusion that they're saying, oh, come towards the light, and it's at that moment they whip your soul away. Now, that sounds completely insane, but as soon as you mention the... Uh, the alien abduction thing, yeah. I suddenly remembered that and it's a well, I got, got a bit worried to be honest. <laughs> well, keep keep that thought. Okay. Cause I'm gonna now, just for the end of this, I'm gonna take us I've I've gone full on tinfoil hattie for the end of this. Maybe it was doing all that scientific research has made me Go tin for Hattie. So, Ben, if you can put yours on, if anyone listening, now is uh, the time. Yes, I uh, I have it here. Yep, good, good, good. There we go. So, earlier, I alluded to this idea linking near-death experiences and a simulated reality or a simulated universe, right? And that mm-hmm. does sound a bit out there. Uh <sighs> And I admit, it's a bit of a tenuous link. But it made made me consider the concept of near-death experience being linked to simulated reality a little further. Now, we've not done an episode about whether we're living in a simulation yet, and I'm not sure why, really, considering we're both a little bit obsessed with it, right? So maybe there is something in our coding Mm -hmm. that is preventing us from doing this, Ben, right? I don't want to start... That's my first tinny hatty thing are we programmed me and you not to do one so i feel we need to do one just to discount that as a concept just to prove not yeah yeah just to prove not but but i'll talk a little bit about it so there are multiple mathematical equations that predict the possibility that we are living in a simulated reality and i've seen uh, uh, various ones and the numbers vary from it's a 50-50 chance that we're living in a a simulated reality right the way through to the chances of this one being the real world and not a simulation are absolutely minuscule, right? So they do range. However, what all those equations generally have in common is they are based on the concept that if we create simulated realities and environments such as computer games, etc., then why would this world not be one? It's more likely that we're in one of the many simulations that have been created in the universe rather than the odds of this being the quote-unquote real world. That It's more likely, right? So mm-hmm. let me explain where this kind of tangled coding in my brain took me with all this. So earlier... You heard a quote that the majority of people who had near-death experiences described it as being akin to something realer than real, right? Keep that in your mind. Yes, yes. That, that got me thinking about the concept of 
could that be because what we are experiencing in some way is give, or they are experiencing in some ways giving them insight into the reality of our simulated universe it's the final part of their programming to have mm-hmm. this revealed to them so I, I can hear you i can hear your tinny hat rustling but stick with me so i started searching for anything that could pack up this random theory of mine and i didn't find it mainly (laughs) (laughs) mainly because i didn't look that hard and i didn't look that hard because i came across something else that distracted me and it blew my mind in a completely different way and that was the work of someone called frank kolkman who describes himself as an experimental designer. What Frank Kolkman did was create a death simulation machine using virtual reality. Okay. Now I know, I can see your face. That sounds a little bit sinister, right? (laughs) It does, yeah, yeah, it's a little bit worrying, but yes. Yeah, the, the death simulation machine. His intention was to create a virtual near-death experience, which he hopes will help terminally ill patients to tackle and ease death anxiety. He intends it to be used as a therapeutic experience to help patients cope and prepare themselves for their own death. So let's talk about this thing, because it is just bizarre. He created... So this device he created... It uses video footage instead of computer-generated visuals, so it feels more real. The user of it stands in front of a robotic head, and the robotic head is fitted with a 3D camera. The robot is mounted on a trolley track, so it can move backwards and forwards. You with me? Mm Mm-hmm. The user, or the person has to stand still in front of the robotic head wearing a virtual reality headset, which is connected to the robot's 3D camera. You with me? Yes. Then the robot moves backwards and forwards on the track while mimicking the head movements of the user who's wearing the VR headset and is not moving. Remember, the user is remaining stationary. I see, I see. This sounds a little bit like how you might make a um, uh, an animatronic device for film or something. Yeah. Okay. So for the user, your experience starts with something that feels incredibly real because you're, through the VR headset, you're seeing exactly what you would be experiencing if you were not wearing the VR headset, right? Mm-hmm. That then as the robot moves on its tracks, reality starts to get distorted and it creates this feeling that you're leaving your stationary body. And they also play around with audio to enhance this experience. Kolkman, who is the designer of this thing, explains what is happening to the user. He says, Our brains utilise subtle differences in timing and timbre to identify the origins of a detected sound in direction and distance and where you are in relation to it. The same goes for the video feed. By removing the ears from the body and placing them in a different locations, your sense of location and presence can be hacked. He also has added another element, a hammer, 
that taps the user's chest each second to mimic a heartbeat that makes the experience even more real and slightly disturbing. And there is a scary end for the user at the end of the process. He's added a mirror at the end of the track the robot is on. So when the robot looks into the mirror right at the end, the user then sees their own reflection. Interestingly, he said he did this because, as I quote, the experience of being present outside of your body can be so convincingly subtle that we had to find a way to break the illusion. Four out of five people who try the simulation experience, uh, they experience sensations of physically moving or being present in a different location. And a few have said it felt like that they were in two places at once. So at this stage in the design concept, really, Kolkman is planning, he's planning to do more scientific tests on it to see if it does have, you know, a positive effect on terminally ill patients and does ease their therapy. Maybe the way I've described it, it says they would, might give them even more fear of death. Hmm. I mean, that's, that is bonkers, right? I, I still don't understand, like, I understand what it's doing, so what he's modeling is an nde he's not modeling the absence of existence he's modeling an nde basically yeah well i i and because it hasn't got any of those elements i think my reading of it is actually he's modeling a certain aspect of an, an nde and to me it was the what the idea of your uh consciousness leaving your body behind Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and then being put back into it i think that's that's you know there's no kind of bright lights or tunnels and and all that kind of stuff yeah there's quite i mean there there is quite a lot of process to think about in the context of that experiment but it did kind of get that process going in my brain that if we are living in a simulated reality and if a near-death experience is the closest we get to understanding our place in the simulation, it made me think, what would the entity who created our simulation make of us creating our own simulation that replicates a near-death experience? Yeah, I agree. That That's kind of like a Hall of Mirrors question, but I, I don't know. It seems... For me, what he's created is a um, a consciousness distortion machine, not a yeah. death simulation machine. Um, yeah. Uh, and he, he's also predicating his design on a load of, uh, well, I suppose beliefs, because those NDE stories, like they all seem... I mean that they they are obviously very heartfelt and heart you know believed, but we don't know we really don't know where they come from. You, I don't know if you've ever read about the experiment where um, a doctor left. I'm. It was, I think it was letters or envelopes high up in operating theatres. Oh, I have heard this. Yeah, and then when people claimed that they'd had an out-of-body experience, which is very, very different to an NDE, absolutely, 
he would then be able to ask about anything that they had seen. And the results were disappointing. Although they sometimes said that they felt they were looking down upon themselves being operated on, they didn't, you know give any indication that they'd seen these things hidden around the top of the operating theater so it feels to me that that's what he's created but i mean you know it's all for the good reason i'm not criticizing the fella i can't do any better but yeah well it it did make me think about those equations though that the equations are something like you know if we create multiple simulations which we do do are there other um is there other intelligent life in the universe which seems incredibly likely if there was intelligent life in the universe would we be talking about thousands of potentially intelligent species out there let's go with that number then you say would they have created some kind of virtual reality simulation like we have we've created millions i would think um Mm. If they've created millions, then mathematically there are, you know, trillions and trillions of virtual reality simulations in the universe. So what are the odds that this reality that we're in is the real one? Minuscule. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, very tiny. But it did and it did make me think of the the almost the the kind of sci-fi script writer in me that this man has created a virtual reality simulation that simulates the death experience it you know you're almost going into a loop with that kind of thought right yeah yeah but but it's only the way that because i was just thinking about that since you last asked me about it and the closest thing i can say is it's like um feeding your family in the sims it's a it's a you're not really giving them a chicken dinner they are just simulating eating a chicken dinner and we don't like that code is not sophisticated enough and we presume that the characters in the sims are not sentient and they don't know that they're supposed to be eating a chicken dinner but if that code was better and there was some kind of consciousness given to those characters then they would believe that they were eating a chicken dinner if they had if they had the knowledge of what a chicken dinner was yeah what he has done is pretend that he has knowledge of a chicken dinner without having eaten a chicken dinner and then is subjecting (laughs) his sims people to that effect if you see what i mean because he doesn't yeah, it could be creating a completely unique experience yes. that nobody's ever experienced. That, yes, yeah. that's exactly right. Because how can he simulate death if he hasn't experienced death? Like, you wouldn't... I can't make a flight simulator because I can't fly a 747. And I wouldn't yeah. just ask somebody who'd been on a 747, or indeed, I wouldn't just interview a pilot and go, can you just tell me what it's like, and then go and build it. You... you all right we said we wouldn't go back to our failed project of creating the quantum mechanics flight simulator (laughs) didn't sell one we didn't sell one copy of that did we (laughs) to be fair it was rubbish it was rubbish (laughs) but uh it's i don't know i think i I think i think that's my standout thing for me going on the scientific journey and the reason I picked the scientific 
journey really came about of, well, everybody's story's kind of similar, and that was bothering me slightly. And so I went down this scientific kind of route, but it's still bothering me because the scientific, as we alluded to earlier, it's like I would expect people's experiences to be vastly different. But if you kind of go back even to those old quotes from the you know, 18th century and the 1900s, it's like they're not that different. And that, you know, that makes me scratch my head. Mm, mm. Yeah, yeah, agree. So I think what the logical sort of further reading on this is... Um, what kind of NDEs did people used to report? But I think that's incredibly difficult, like you say, because I don't think there will be many. I suspect we'll end up with um, uh, ones based on theology, and, and we will never know yeah. whether those experiences, how much of that is reality. Because as you say, if you if you live in let's just say Britain in the 1600s, you are going to be compelled to write a theological um, and religious version of what it is you've seen. Mm. Uh, And people, I think there's another element to this as well. When you look at modern day, like there are quite a few books on, uh, you know, I've, I've been to heaven and back. You've, you've seen those. There's, there's several, there's several of them. And and again, I've tried to get into them, and they are just such utter bullshit, because all they are like uh, it, it might be if you're a listener and you've read one that isn't that, then fine, I haven't come across it. But I've read so many, which is which sort of start off with, oh, I wasn't religious, then I had this NDE, and I met up with God and Jesus, and He told me I had to live my life better. And then when I came back, I was a devout Christian. It takes about 300 words, uh, 300 pages to say this. And then yeah. they go, oh, and now I'm raising money for Jesus's cause. It's like, oh, come on. Don't, this is, yeah, yeah. this yeah, is just ridiculous. Yeah. And very, very rarely have I ever come across, um, you know, an end that I hadn't, like I say, hadn't come across many of your cases, but most of them that I've read seem like fairly charming. Like there was a thing of light. I saw some relatives, they were beckoning me in, but then one of them said, no, it's not your time yet. And I went, oh, come on, let me stay. And they go, no, you've got more to do. And then you go back and you wake up on the operating table. And again, yeah. there's just there's just no compelling evidence. Like some compelling evidence would be the sort of compelling evidence that we look for from a psychic. Like, yeah. I met my great 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 grandmother, and um, she told me that she'd buried a knitting needle twenty feet yeah, away yeah. from her house, and then I went there and dug it up, and there it is. And so it must have been her. We never get that. We never get that. Well, it's interesting you say that because when you were talking about going back and trying and finding old cases, which would be difficult to do, what it did make me think about was 
if, according to this scientific article, they are influenced by cultural norms, let's say, let's use that word rather than beliefs, then surely near-death experiences in different cultures would be different, you know. Would, yeah. You know, if, you, if you're uh, in Japan and you're into the Shinto religion uh, or, or belief system, you know, is, is, a, is a Japanese near-death experience very different to a Western one? Or, you know, it, it got me thinking about that. That could be an area. Because if you went all around the world and you could go back in time and find older examples... If these key themes that, like you said, all of the near-death, ex- but most of the near-death experiences that you read about share these similar themes, if that is a worldwide and, going back, historically accurate for everyone, that does reveal something to me. Yeah, yeah, no, it does. It absolutely does. Um, and... And, and it's this point, normally in the podcast, we would say, well, if you've had a near-death experience, tell us about it. You know what? I, I don't want to hear about your near-death experience unless it is outside of the norm. Because, again, I couldn't find any examples that are these horrible experiences that that people have had. Do you know what I mean? I couldn't yeah. find your experience of... Yeah, no, my near-death experiences, I've, I've floated off out of my body and then I was on stage at Wembley Stadium with 90,000 people, you know, singing along to every, hanging on to my every word. That Anybody has had something like that, that would be really interesting. Not that I'm discounting anybody's near-death experience. It, I did no. sound a bit aggressive when I said it, but <laughs> it's like you, you don't find anything that, or it's a struggle to find anything that's outside of that, which which is why I was quite intrigued by those two older quotes that I used earlier, because yeah, 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 it, it, they were focusing on it in a different way. Maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Well, whilst we were talking, I because I was thinking, well, I wonder whether because and and I don't know, like like what I was just postulating is people who who overlay a sort of. I, I would say it's an evangelical um, sort of brush over these experiences. I I think I have to take them, and whether it's just my own prejudice or not, but I think I have to take them with a pinch of salt because they always seem too fantastical. But I found a, a, an actual scientific paper whilst we were talking, um, published by the US National Library of Medicine, but it's a, it was a study done by... Um, uh native muslims in iran and it okay. uh, and it was it was on uh cardiopulmonary resuscitation survivors and it, right. uh, uh, and um exactly what you said this supports everything you say the uh, all of these um muslims experienced exactly the same uh, near death experiences as people in western countries and it has those four elements, the pleasing experiences with seeing light and flying, the experience of transport to the beyond, the out-of-body experience, and um, then there was the reviewing life and memories. And that's the only bit that changes because they say yeah, yeah. that the, they're all different, they're all different yeah. and the life review, if you're religious, 
is based upon your own personal beliefs. Now that makes sense because that is checking. If that is a thing that is checking your life against your morals. Yeah. And which like that does go both ways though, because like being, being an atheist, but you know, uh, I don't want to kill a man and uh, I rescue puppy dogs. I think I'm, I think I'm fairly solidly moral and, I try and live by that, not because I'm scared of uh, some creator that is going to banish me, but just because I think that's how you should live. But I presume or you could, or you could put it a different way, Ben, couldn't you? You could say what's intriguing about that study is those other key, more general elements are the same. The only bit that's different is your own yes personal experience, because you are living in a different culture with a different. Yes. everyday personal experience to to someone else yes so, yes yes yeah yes. yeah yes that's, that's true that is fascinating that's true but but where i was going with that is if it is based upon if your life review is based on your own morals and the culture you live within does that mean hitler's life review was so how did it go yeah i killed six million people no oh, well you know did you believe it? Yeah, yeah, they deserved it. Oh well, that's fine then, isn't it? Um, so it's not really. I don't. I don't. That life review thing to me seems. I don't know. I like presumably it's. It, well, it's either real. Or, yeah, it's it's either true. It's either real or not. But it seems flawed if uh, if Hitler could get away with it. If you see what I mean. Yeah, but I was oh, I was almost thinking of that more in the context of our simulated reality game it's almost that point when your character dies and you know it counts up the positive tokens with the negative tokens I almost visualized it like that oh i see what you mean yeah so the life you know review I mean? where you get a summary when your character dies you get a summary of your performance right? that's right yeah 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 no that's it uh, it is intriguing it is intriguing it, if only <laughs> we could ask like, if only we could ask a chimp who'd come back on the veterinary table what what it saw, we'd get a better idea. Because a lot of our knowledge about ourselves and our you know our, our medicine is based yeah. on not only observation of humans but experimentation on animals, and you can't really ask a chimp what yeah. what it saw. Oh. I could just envision it again. There was fruit everywhere. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, bless it. I hope that's what it is. Oh, that's what I want it to be. I, I woke up when it was just banana trees oh, everywhere. Yeah, it was bananas. This lovely fruit everywhere. There was lovely water supply. And oh, I was really content. I was in, we, we were a lovely group. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean obviously we ripped each other's faces off because we're yeah, chimps yeah, yeah. but yeah, yeah yeah uh well i mean some ndes do include pets don't they so oh i don't come across that yeah yeah well, well once again ben we are we're the paranormal podcast that takes you further away from the truth we've failed to reach a conclusion but it was again it was a good journey i think that was a very good journey. I very much enjoyed that. Um, I'm going to get coding our uh, flight simulator. Yep. And anyone who's listening, it's time to go back into your body, take the tinfoil hat off and go back to everyday existence. 
rather yeah. than being in rather than being in, in this blissful at one peace in the universe environment that you're in right now listening to us yeah no don't do that yeah <laughs> or just listen to another episode that's that's another way that would be great um yeah. rate review tell your friends um yes 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 d- 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 scrawl our logo under a bridge anything like that that would help and oh, i'm not because we we've i've gone on for long enough but i just wanted to say thank you to everyone who left us really nice messages uh, about us hitting our 30,000 downloads, Mark. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, never thought, well, when we started, never thought that was a thing, but it is a yeah. thing. It's a thing, and it's a good thing. It is a good thing, yeah. All right. Well, we will, uh, we'll catch you next time on The Quantum Mechanics. See you next time. Bye. Bye. the quantum mechanics.